Welcome to Movie Maker. I'm Tim Malloy, and today we're talking all about Red Rocket. First up is a conversation with star Simon Rex and director Sean Baker, and then we get into a conversation with Brie Elrod. Rex plays a washed-up porn star who returns to a small Texas hometown, Texas City, where he begs to move in with his wife, played by Elrod, and her mother, played by first-time actor and real Texas City local, Brenda Dice. Just when he seems to be repairing his relationship with them, he turns his attention to a 17-year-old donut shop employee named Strawberry, played by Susanna's son, and begins plotting to use her to weasel his way back into the porn industry. Red Rocket is a vivid, hilarious, and haunting movie, and like Sean Baker's past film, Starlet Tangerine and Florida Project, it lets you draw your own conclusions without hectoring. Personally, I thought Tangerine was the best film of 2015, and The Florida Project was certainly one of the best films of 2017, a very strong year, and Red Rock was the best movie I've seen so far this year. Besides its irresistible energy, Red Rock had benefits from Sean Baker's incredible penchant for street casting, which is exactly what it sounds like. Finding non-actors, new actors, or relatively inexperienced actors, sometimes when you're just out on the street. He first met Susanna's son at the now-defunct Arclight Theater in Hollywood when he just liked her look and thought she might be good in one of his future movies. He met Brenda Dice when he was coming out of a Texas City porta potty and she asked if he could jumpstart her car. And he met Brittany Rodriguez, a local refinery worker who plays a backyard weed dealer, when she was walking her dog. Finally, he met Ethan Darbon, who is heartbreaking as a lonesome neighbor named Lonnie, when Darbon was working at a local restaurant. You're about to hear all about Sean Baker's casting and the interviews that follow, with some unexpected detours into Bay Area hip-hop shows, and the making of Martin Scorsese's Shutter Island. We'll start with Simon Rex and Sean Baker, and I'll be writing much more about Red Rocket in the next issue of Movie Maker Magazine. Red Rocket is now in theaters, and I highly, highly recommend checking it out. Oh, and one more very important thing. Uh, the phrase Red Rocket refers to a dog's penis and you will occasionally hear Sean Baker's dog in the background of this interview. Okay, here's Sean Baker and Simon Rex talking about Red Rocket, followed by Brie Elrod. Most movies, like, you can sort of feel the beats, you can sort of feel like, oh, this is a movie. And I don't feel that way with this movie. It just feels really real. And I wanted to talk about how intentional that was and how you did it. I like that question. Yeah. Um, Simon, do you, you want to start? Yeah, I'll, I'll be happy to start. I mean, in my, my first uh, reaction to that question would be because it was really real in that, you know, Sean likes to put his actors in a real environment, such as someone like me who he brought on and, and then my, you know, like the own, I think the, uh, the local talent, which was most of the cast minus, me, Brie Elrod, who's my wife, and Susanna Son, who's my uh, girlfriend in the movie, The Love Triangle. Um, you know, they're both entertainers, Brie being from the theater scene. Susanna was in LA to make it. I've done stuff before. And then he put us in Texas and it was real. You know, we were in a real house that he rented. It wasn't a movie set. He was hired local uh, first time actors. Um, I've learned to say that instead of non-actors because they are actors. You saw how good they were. Yeah. And uh, it is real because we just went into that environment and you can feel it and smell it. And it's just something about, um, I don't know, I've shot so many movies that are just on a fake set in Burbank with a bunch of actors from all over the world who are doing fake accents. And it's people aren't tricked by that. I think 
people don't buy that anymore. Um, and uh, that that's my first instinct to that question. And I'm sure Sean has a better version. Yeah, no, I, I agree. We were really entrenched and it was also at a time, it was a very, you know, like now, I mean, it's a, it's, it's a definitely a, um, stressful tense time in the in our country but especially right then when we were shooting you had you know obviously covid we we're shooting during covid pre-vaccine uh the elections were coming up uh the murder of george floyd was very you know prominent in the news and all of that energy combined i think it was a pretty stressful it was just a stressful time to be alive in the United States, but and but to be shooting something during that, I think we captured that the the energy of that time, and it got somehow caught on caught on celluloid. I think so. Maybe that's what is alive because we were just in the moment, you know, dealing with the day the day to day, and um, just trying to keep going. We did not want to get shut down, so there was that constant driving forward in that energy i think we were we were running from covid <laughs> but like it was right on our asses the entire time but well, yeah and you had a false covid positive two yeah three altogether two for me one for samantha kwan uh one of the producers and so it was it those were little hiccups but you know little hiccups that you know you uh, like with these types of movies you have to take these hiccups and see the positive side of them find the po what what's positive about this hiccup and um, it usually did lead to something like allowing us to slow down enough to help us develop something else or perhaps it you know i i think during the times that we were waiting especially after that first covid uh i found more of the supporting cast so it was, it was you know we, we were just con we never had money or time to throw up problems. So we just literally had to abandon the problem and pivot to, to pivot in a, another direction and just uh, accept our circumstances, so. Is there an example of that? That's such a wonderful comment. Uh, there, I'm almost every, every day, my God, there seems to be some issue uh, with, you know, just, just something not being able to, to happen because of COVID. I, I'm trying to think of, of a specific thing. But usually what it came down to is that we couldn't get, um, you know, uh, everybody, all the supporting cast, all the extras had to be, you know, tested beforehand. And it, that made it a lot more difficult. Usually when I'm, when I'm street casting regularly for extras, sometimes it's as spontaneous as saying, hey, man, we're shooting a scene uh, tonight. Can you show up for this party scene? And it really adds to the spontaneity. But when you're asking somebody, oh, we're having this, you know, this party scene and we're shooting it in a week and you're going to need to get a test and you're needing to show up here and there. It really, uh, yeah, it throws a monkey wrench in that. Uh, but you know what? Uh, I had a tremendous um, team of producers who just wore all these different hats and just made it happen. So, yeah. Uh, let me I, ask about street casting and then I want to get into Simon's casting, which is also an amazing story. Um, so there's this idea in the movie of this of the suitcase pimp, and I understand you learned about that when you were researching Starlet. Yeah. Um, the term suitcase pimp, and I think I understand what it is, but it's basically kind of a fly-by-night exploitative jerk of a guy who sort of doesn't have anything of his own, but is going to bring somebody along with him. Well, it's more specific than that. It's actually a male talent in the adult film world who lives off of a female talent in the adult film world. So they're often... You know, they're performers themselves, but they're also usually the boyfriend, partner, husband, uh, 
manager of a female talent. Uh, so that's, and yeah, so it's a term used within the industry for these specific men. Um, again, not representing all men in the industry, you know, just a certain archetype. So yeah, it, it stemmed from that. Simon, had you met suitcase pimps? I mean, or, or people in the industry who were like suitcase pimps, not necessarily in, in adult film? Uh, not that I'm aware of. Um, it's possible I have, and I just didn't know it. Uh, like the other day, someone said that they were a Sagittarius. And I said, I don't know if I've ever met a Sagittarius before, but I'm sure I have. <laughs> uh, but no, that I learned about that. Ter- Sorry, that was a bad joke. I learned about um, this this term myself once I, I read the script and Sean explained it to me. It was actually his selling point on the movie when he called me. He's like, you're going to play a suitcase pimp. And I was like, I don't know what that is, but count me in. <laughs> Sounds amazing. Yeah. Uh, and then I read the script and sort of figured it out, obviously. And then, you know, at the end of the movie, it's, you know, sort of, that's sort of, how, that, that's the word that, that for whatever reason really pisses me off and gets me out of the house after talking all that shit. That's what gets me upset. Like, so obviously there's something behind that and I take offense. And it really reminds me of Star 80, one of my favorite movies ever. Uh, Eric Roberts plays basically a version yeah, of he that. He is. He is. It, that, it's that just, is. yeah. He's, you know, he's, he's take, I don't know if you've ever seen that movie, but it's an incredible movie. And he basically is just, you know, living this lifestyle via his, you know, uh, young, beautiful girlfriend who he's pimping into Playboy magazine. He's going to the Playboy mansion and he's reaping all the benefits of her, you know, career. So it's, it's that, that I, I just thought that was a good similar, uh, it would be a good double feature. Yes, it would be. You mentioned doing that sometime and, uh, you know, I, People have a hard time sitting through a two-hour movie these days, so good luck. But yes, <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> I mean, we would be able to, but yeah, we might need a little break. Well, one thing I wanted to ask: I'm I'm super paranoid about, like, as a manager in the workplace, about doing anything that's perceived as like inappropriate or creepy or weird. I mean, especially now. And with street casting, kind of like the Hollywood cliche is somebody who comes up to like a pretty woman and says, oh, hey, I'm a producer, I'm a director. Do you want to be in a movie? And it's like the, the sleaziest, you know, most cliched pickup line, but you have to kind of do that in street casting. So I'm wondering, have you gone out of your way um, to not be perceived as a suitcase pimp or to not come off as like a sleazy guy? Like, is that- well, it, used to be, it used to be easier because there used to be with uh, physical media, when everybody had a DVD player, it was quite easy just to whip out a, a DVD and go, I made this. And it ultimate, I mean, it, it immediately legitimizes you. Now it's like, can you, you know, IMDB me. Oh, do you know what IMDB is? Oh, just Google. You know, it gets a little bit, you know, it's a more drawn out and it takes a little more time, but you know, I'm usually with a part with somebody, you know, with Samantha, I was with Samantha, my, my uh, producer, slash wife when we approached Susanna's son. I was with Alex Coco, a fellow producer, when I approached Brittany Rodriguez. You know, um, yeah, you walk on eggshells, um, but you know, you're also, you know, you also uh, put it into their hands. Let's just say that you put it in their court. You go, you know, um, uh, look us up. Uh, If you're interested, you know, reach back out to us. And, you know, you need that step, actually. It's, it's important for a couple of reasons. Important for everything you just described, not to come across as creepy or to be in a weird situation, but also because you want to know that they have the enthusiasm. They need to have the interest. Because if not, 
you just, you know, you could, you could, I, I've, 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 uh, I've heard horror stories about people who have cast, uh, and I've never been in this situation. For me, it's been some supporting characters, never a lead, but there are some people who have cast first timers as leads who don't really have aspirations to act, don't really care, don't have that enthusiasm, and they lose them halfway through a shoot, which is, you know, big, big deal. So the enthusiasm. Now, Simon, Simon's casting, I just want to hear this story firsthand because I read in IndieWire, Simon, that you are at home in Joshua Tree. You, you're considering leaving the industry. You've literally left Hollywood. I think this is like an investment property that you're maybe thinking of flipping or something. Yeah, that's pretty accurate. I basically, I, I don't think I, I completely threw in the towel, but it was sort of my, uh, like, again, I, I, I keep saying this because I'm trying to figure out, I don't understand exactly, the, you know, the, uh, the universal law that is applied here. And maybe I'm looking too into it. Maybe there is no meaning, but I, I basically, you know, after 20 years of the grind in LA, up and down and every other direction, I said, okay, I, I you know, maybe 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 my run is up you know the phone wasn't ringing as much and i was actually kind of okay with it for the first time i, I wasn't like holding on to the dream anymore and i just kind of looked back at my life and i was like all right you know that's a pretty good career maybe better than most that came out here it was all right maybe maybe it's time to explore something else so i bought you know instead of moving to you know i wanted to move to costa rica or bali or somewhere and just fuck off but i didn't think i just knew deep inside that it wasn't over like I can't explain it. So I just said, let me just get something a couple hours out of LA. So I was still could be accessible if I was needed. So I could only really afford something in Joshua Tree. I couldn't afford something in Santa Barbara or on the beach. Or So I basically went and bought a little plot of land and just beautiful, you know, rock formation, little zone in the desert with a tiny house. And I was going to rent it out and live there on the weekends and sort of just transition into something else. And as soon as I sort of did that and went out of my comfort zone with the pandemic hit and I moved there full time. And instead of renting it out, I just moved in and said, fuck it, I'm just going to live here and see what happens. And, you know, I was about July. So it was a really weird time during the pandemic and everyone was still kind of just like, what the fuck's going on? And it was just a strange time. And uh, I get a phone call out of the blue and it's a friend of mine who knows Sean's sister who works on all his films, Stefanik. And she was mutual friends. And she said, Sean Baker wants to reach out to you. Um, he was going to DM you on Instagram, but you might not see it. So he calls me and I auditioned for him on this phone right here. I just put it up on the kitchen counter, did a cold read of the first scene of the movie and sent it in. And he just liked my energy and said, uh, yeah, I need you here immediately. And it kind of happened like that. Okay. So was that, what month was that? That was July or October? July? July, you reached out, I think. Yeah. And then I was there shortly after and we were shooting in august to september maybe it was end of july it was, like wait it was because i had a false positive and right it was actually the beginning of august we okay. finally reached out to you and then you got okay. there and we we started shooting like the third week in august i believe okay so that's what it was so yeah it was in august earlier, but yeah yeah because that's right because i took my rv out for two months and then i just got back to the desert from a two-month rv trip during the summer which was just my way of it was too hot in Joshua Tree to be there in the middle of summer. And they, they told me that when I bought the house, they're like, just leave, just leave in the summer. It's too hot. I have no AC there or nothing. So I, because it's off grid. And anyway, so I, yeah, that was the timing of that. Yeah. Okay. Here's what I don't get. Why do you reach out to Simon Rex so late in the process? Because you, you'd been planning 
this movie for like four years, right? Starting with- well, No, no, no. I was actually developing <laughs> another film. I uh, see after Red Rocket, we, we were entertaining a lot of ideas. Uh, and one of them was Red Rocket. One of them was like, uh, it was just like, hey, remember that idea about a suitcase pimp? Yeah, Red Rocket, cool. Hey, this is beginning to go and end. We worked it all out very quickly. But then we were also flirting with these other ideas. And I decided to move forward with this bigger film that had meaning in, in budget um, to one that was uh, being developed up in Vancouver, one that I hope to get back to soon when the pandemic is more of an afterthought because it can't be shot during a pandemic. So um, that took up about two and a half years of my life, like just really in it. And then uh, living up in Vancouver for about a year. And then, and then all of a sudden COVID happened. We just happened to be in LA when the border, like luckily, because we were, we just came, came back to LA for two weeks to do some house cleaning and suddenly the borders closed. We were sitting in LA going, oh my God, like I guess mourning, actually like mourning over the, over this project that we weren't going to do. When Alex Sachs, one of the pr film's producers called me up and said, I think I can get you a little bit of money. If you happen to have anything on the back burner, it's going to be like a quarter of the budget of your last film, but do you want to do it? And I'm like, I don't even know the future, our, our future in general. I may as well take whatever right now. And yes, I happen to have this idea on the back burner that we cracked five years ago. So that's why it all got back up and going. And then we went to Texas to see, to figure out where we were shooting. I got a false positive. We all went back to LA. That delayed us by an entire month. So we didn't really, it wasn't until we were actually back to, uh, in Texas the second time and really had things solidified that we started reaching out to everybody, making sure it was actually a green light because we never knew when we were going to get shut down, quite honestly. And, and so that's probably why there was that delay. But I honestly, five years ago when we broke Red Rocket, I remember texting one of my producers saying, and if we ever make Red Rocket, it's going to be this guy. And I texted one of Simon's Vine videos to my producer and they were like, oh, cool. Awesome. <laughs> so this is okay. That's a cool idea. So he's been on our mind forever and, and was very much a part of the way that I developed this character and thought about this character. Um, weird thing that just popped into my head that I just remembered. And I just want to tell you, I've always liked Simon Rex um, because I saw you at an AC alone show in like 1999 and you oh. were just there as like a normal person. You weren't there as like a celebrity or something. You were just like a hip hop fan in Oakland, I think it was. Whoa. I just thought that was cool that you were there. Like out Interesting. Of yeah. AC alone is one of the greatest West Coast underground rappers of all time. And I'm from the Bay Area. So I probably was there. That was a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> it was a good show. Um, uh, yeah. So cool. One thing I wanted to ask about is... Um, the use of nudity in this movie, and this may be my like puritanism or something, but I always feel bad for actors whenever there are nude scenes. And I'm always worried, like, did they get talked into this or something? Uh -huh. um, so how do you, you, is there a philosophy behind when you have nudity in the movie and when you don't? Well, being transparent right off the bat, right off the bat, say, here's the script. It does require nudity. If there are any issues, let's talk about it right now. So there weren't with any of my, with any of my actors. Um, and then when it comes down to actually shooting, just, you know, we were small and I don't use an intimacy coordinator just simply because I have a very good relationship with my actors. We were all on the same page. We literally rehearsed 
the scene, and they're not really sex scenes. I would say they're sex shots. We were, we, we set up, we, we, you know, had the exact positioning of the bodies already calculated. They, they, um, during a, a sort of like a semi re rehearsal, uh, the actors did it with their, their, their clothes on just to, for us to figure out the motions, the beats, how it was going to go down. Then we shot it with a, clo a nice closed set. And it was actually quite fun because those scenes are actually fun. I, I mean, <laughs> they're cut down to like literally, what, three Mississippis in order to <laughs> drive this. Set. But we would shoot, we shot for like what, Simon? I would say like maybe a couple, like a minute maybe on yeah. shots. So there's a minute of improv of those moments. And it's really, it was actually quite fun i mean for me uh because i could tell my actors were having fun uh, am i saying that right yeah, yeah that, no and, and not only that but in a weird way it's like i don't think you planned this but those like love making scenes if it's a nice way to put it um we're we're uh we're pretty quick into production so you're kind of forced to uh, like kind of uh have a deeper bond i don't know how to say yeah, this they way. were early on in production for almost all the actors they had to do it pretty early on yeah so once you go there with your co-star and you know you're basically just like all you know almost nude we were you know covered up in the right areas but it looks like we we're fully nude and we're doing that you kind of all right now now we know each other pretty well so when you're doing a scene and just talking it seems like okay we've already gone a lot deeper than this so in a weird way i thought it kind of helped uh and I don't think that was a strategic plan, but we, we not. It, was, it, it wasn't, it was just scheduling. We had to shoot out of order. And it, for some reason, those scenes had to be shot first. But I remember having that conversation with Susanna and she goes, I'm happy about this because I got it out of the way. Yeah. And, yeah. So. And when, and to add to that, also, Sean was very, uh, you know, he really had these shots set up with the DP, Drew Daniels. It was very, very he let us know. He cleared the room. It was very respectful. Oh, yeah. we, we communicated with each other, with the actors. I made sure both of my co-stars were very comfortable. I kind of felt like it was my duty to, you know, kind of uh, let them be at ease a little bit more. We just communicated and Sean goes, OK, look, here's the shot. It's this. We're just going to see the side of your hip. And then, you know, I, I always say this, but at the end of the movie, if you add up all of the lovemaking scenes and all of the nudity, it's under two minutes of a two hour and eight minute film. It, you know, and that's being generous. So it's, it really wasn't gratuitous or uncomfortable. It was kind of just like Sean was very sensitive to that. Just like, okay, we're going to just roll on this for, for 60 seconds and we're going to use a few seconds of it, so a chunk of it. And, and that's being generous. It was probably less than 60 seconds. Yeah. And also, yeah, uh, Simon just mentioned, I, I, it's important for me to show the actors the frame. You know, oh. I, I, I go, here's the frame. Here's exactly how it's going to look and get approval. The only uncomfortable part was that we were not on a movie set. We were in somebody's real house in their real bed. Yeah. So it was more like, who's, who's bed are we in right now? I kind of smell someone I don't know in here. They were fresh, <laughs> fresh sheets. They were fresh sheets. Okay, yeah, well, the room still had a, their odor. There's the run through what I understand is kind of a bad neighborhood in Texas City, which must have been... I think probably the best use of nudity I've seen in a movie because it is like, so just all hell is broken loose. Like, <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, Hey, I, uh, I admit we, uh, we just had to steal what they call steal that shot. We, uh, we, we tried to do it, uh, you know, through the right, you know, avenues, but we didn't, it was COVID. We weren't getting a lot of, uh, 
we weren't getting a lot of proper responses. So we went ahead and we started. Start, hey, don't. Sorry. Oh, so and we Mike. add to that while he takes care yeah. of the dogs. Yeah. Sorry. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> no, go ahead. Sorry. But then, and you basically, you know, it was like uh, it, what I just realized, too, was that uh, the funny part that I actually added to it was that um, the uncomfortable part was actually mostly the bottom of my feet on this kind of rural, like gravelly road that I had to run on. So we kind of had to duct tape the bottom of my feet, but I still was kind of running like, ouch, ouch, out, ah, because it kind of hurts. So I'm running kind of like I got a stick up my ass and I think it looks funny. So it kind of adds to the comedy of how I'm running sort of like a dork. Um, uh, I, but I think that helped. It was actually the most uncomfortable part was the bottom of my feet. And also I was worried that a neighbor would turn on a light. We were in a pretty rural area, but we were yeah. at 2 a.m. running through a, so, you know, a kind of sketchy industrial area. Right of outside the refineries. Yeah, we were by the refineries, but there was a couple of times where I turned the corner and it was like, it was, there was a couple houses and I was like, fuck, someone's going to come out on the porch and be like, what It was definitely fuck? guerrilla filmmaking all the way. I mean, like, you know, it was like, Van pulls up, door opens, naked guy jumps out. Let's shoot this now. Get back in the van, tear yeah. out of there. It was one of those. Uh, there was a moment where the uh, Texas City Police came out of nowhere and surrounded us. And we said, no, we're, we're that independent film uh, crew that, you know, we, we, we approached the department about this. And they were like, oh, that's you guys? Oh, okay. Yeah, no, no problem at all. And it was at that moment that we realized they're mostly just concerned about any potential terrorism around the refineries. That's their number one priority. So we were harmless in their eyes. That was Sean Baker and Simon Rex talking about Red Rocket. And now we're going to dive right into the interview with Brie Elrod, who plays Lexi in the film. She's married to Simon Rex's character, Mickey, in the film. And Brie Elrod also has some of the key scenes with first-time actors. We'll talk about all of that right now. So your character is a former porn star. She's at least dabbling with heroin, I believe. Yes, she's dabbling, dabbling with heroin, yes. <laughs> I don't know if she's a full-blown addict, but she's definitely doing heroin. Yes, yes. Um, she doesn't have a, an official nine-to-five type job. I don't want to give too much away. Sure, um, sure. She's a really complicated person. What was your impression of her when you first saw her on the page? Um, well, exactly that. I, I thought, wow, this woman has had so many life experiences that have led her to this part, to this point in her life. And... Um, I guess my my responsibility was to find a way in that would honor her story and whatever she was experiencing or whatever she had experienced and bring that into the present moment. And that includes all of her history with Mikey and all of her history in LA and what she's trying to do now and the fact that she has a child, you know, and what that means and where is that child, you know, so I, there's definitely a lot of layers in there. And of course, as an actor, you can't play layers. So you just have to kind of uh, do as much research as you can and then inhabit it and just try to flex it out as you go yeah. um yeah when did you first hear about this movie i understand you knew one of the producers yes uh sammy kwan samantha kwan who we went to nyu grad acting together in new york and we've been friends for a really long time just kind of kept in touch over the years and i was actually in a play in portland oregon at the time um and when covid 
uh, shuttered everything. And I was, you know, going through this existential, oh my God, what am I going to do? Are the arts completely just dead forever? Are we ever going to be able to get back into a space with each other again and watch art? And, you know, so I was just having all the questions that every artist in the world basically was having at the moment. And I got a call from Sammy and uh, she said, you know, we're doing this passion project. We were supposed to be doing this other show, but because there were so many people involved, we needed to do something smaller. Um, and it's, it's this, it's this role that I just, she's like, you know, I was working out this morning with Sean and I dropped my barbell and I thought Brie Elrod would be, would be perfect for this. And I was like, well, what is it? And she was like, well, she's a, uh, heroin addicted former porn star. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, <laughs> I was like, yes, please. Um, and so then she gave me a monologue to work on. Uh, they were still working on the script, so it wasn't um, something they wanted to share at that moment. So they basically just said, no makeup, as honest and as natural as you can. And so I worked on it. I worked really hard on it. And then I put myself on tape and I sent it to Sammy. And then like a couple hours later, she was like, Sean watched it. And within the first like minute, it was like, that's Lexi, <laughs> that's Lexi. So um, that's kind of how it happened. And, you know, it just it really was kind of one of those things that even though it, I got that call, there was still so much going on just with COVID that I was like, we're not going to make this movie. Like, we're not, gonna, how is this even going to happen? Like, I, that's really nice that you guys think we're going to be able to do this, but we're not going to be able to, you know, it's so to me, the fact that this movie was even made is truly a miracle. And the fact now that we're at this place where people are really responding to it and enjoying it seems like icing on the cake. So the fact that we were able to make this safely and and in a period of time in which was so precarious is really just, I mean, such a, a, a miraculous feat. <laughs> when did you first get the call and how fast did you go into production after that? Um, you know, I got the call, I would say, I wanna say maybe like May or June and, um, I was still in Portland at the time. And then I got the call that they were gonna start filming in, uh, I think it was August or September of last year. And so I went back to New York to kind of get myself in the zone. And then we, I drove down with one of the producers who also plays the donut shop owner, Shi uh, Ching, and we drove down to Texas together. So um, it was crazy. We all had to drive because the budget was so small that they couldn't afford to quarantine us for two weeks, um, you know, leading up to it. So we all drove in from, I mean, people drove in from New York, Simon drove in, Susie drove in from LA. We all just like met in Texas. So it was so no planes because that exposes you potentially to COVID. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. No, it was crazy. Well, and it was just so like, I mean, and I really do mean it was precarious because the stakes were so high because if anyone would have gotten COVID, I mean, we might not have finished the film. I mean, because we would not have been able to afford for everyone to just, okay, well, well, somebody has it. We have to quarantine for two weeks. No, we probably would have been like, well, everyone has to go home and we'll try to get more money to like figure this out. But so I feel like, and I almost feel like that just adds in the film. You can kind of feel this, like, like something's happening and something's gonna happen. And I feel like that's how we were all feeling as artists too, is like, are we going to be able to pull this off? Are we going to be able to do this? You know? So like at the end, when we actually did, we were like, holy crap, we did it. I think we did it. <laughs> it's funny. Cause some COVID COVID movies, movies shot during COVID feel just very like safe and just kind of non-ambitious because you know, the people don't want to they don't want to do crowd scenes. They don't want to do anything that's going to be risky. So you have just kind of two people in a room, perhaps at a distance from each other. And this feels nothing like that. This, it oh, seems yeah. like this was just fueled by that nervous energy. I think so. I think you're right. I mean, I, 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 
I think that because of the nature of the story, because there aren't a ton of crowd scenes, I mean, and and every we had such a small uh, crew. I mean, if you look at the credits, it's like hilarious because it's like everyone's name over and over again. It's like when you do like a student film or whatever, and it's like it even says like Sean Baker Precision Driving. Like right. <laughs> it's like um, you know, and and Chi Ching who drove me down is a producer, but she also acted in it. She also was doing costumes. She also was doing continuity. I mean, I feel like we had such a tiny little group, but because we had a safe, tiny group, we were able to play in that, that form. You know, we were able to play, I think very openly in that and everyone was tested. Everyone was, you know, um, safe, but you're right. I think, I think that it is kind of hard during that time to do things that feel, I mean, cause we had intimate scenes. We had, you know, there was a lot that we couldn't be far away from each other or else it wouldn't have been as compelling. Yeah, it seems like the scenes that everybody kind of avoided for a while were intimate scenes, crowd scenes, and fight scenes. And I understand you had to go into the intimate scenes like basically the first few days. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we um we couldn't find Brenda one day, um, <laughs> the woman playing my mom. Um, she was supposed to come and we just, we couldn't find her. We, were, we didn't know where she was. She wasn't answering her phone. Um, and so that was the day that we were supposed to film that first, um, where in the kitchen where Mikey's going on that long monologue and we're just looking like at each other. And it was so, because we couldn't film that that day, I basically, one of the other producers came up and said, um, so Brie, I think we're going to be, uh, we're going to be filming some of the intimate seats today. And I was like, okay. Okay, uh -huh. cool, cool. But it was almost like really great because I didn't have time to overthink about it or get too nervous about it. Cause when you're suddenly just like, oh, we have to do this. And that again, that is another thing about the whole process is that we just had to kind of be ready for anything. I felt like we were kind of just these like troop of artists being like, oh, we have to do that today. Okay, I wasn't planning on doing that, but yep, let's do it. You know, and everyone was so game. Um, and that, but to that, I, I do not feel like it was a rushed thing. I do not feel like we did something and I wasn't ready for it. We talked about it in length before filming and everything was very carefully choreographed. All of those scenes are, um, have a story in and of themselves, which I really appreciate. Like they all are, are meant to forward the story. Yeah. Um, you know, and they all have a very specific, he even kind of mirrors the sex scenes between um, Lexi and Mikey and Strawberry, like as far as positioning goes. I mean, everything is very well thought out. And um, I felt completely comfortable uh, doing those, even though it was like, oh, we're doing that today. Okay, cool, cool. <laughs> yeah, we've had kind of a debate in our pages brought on by Paul Verhoeven um, saying that people shouldn't be so afraid of sex scenes. Um, about whether they're still necessary or helpful or still have a place. And I sort of thought like, yeah, they're kind of antiquated, aren't they? Like who, who still wants to see this? It's, it seems like really fraught. And then I saw Red Rock and I was like, no, nope, this is a movie where they're totally essential and they do forward the character and they're absolutely there for a reason. And it totally disproved that whole notion. Oh, that's interesting. I mean, I can understand that point. And, and, you know, if it's just gratuitous for, you know, titillation sake, then I, I don't, you know, I don't see the point in it. But for this, even reading the script, I was just like, yep, this makes sense. I mean, even the, you know, the first, uh, you know, she, she and Mikey's first scene together, it's very like familial, very much like they know each other. They have, they don't even take all their clothes, you know? And yeah. then the second scene, it's very, her running the show. I mean, that's what it was written in the script. Lexi is running the show, which shows the audience also that like Lexi is feeling more comfortable with Mikey and is letting him back into her life. And that's important. We need to see that. So I, I think um, all of the scenes, well, and also like doing a story about former porn stars, you know, it would be 
I think really weird to have no sex scenes at all. Oh, can we talk about just your journey as an actor? Like you came from Topeka, Kansas, you went to NYU. Yeah. You're mostly known as a stage actor. Yeah. Yeah, I basically have been, um, I've been doing mostly theater uh, for my whole career. I've been doing a lot of regional theater, worked in uh, Kansas City, I've worked in San Francisco, I've worked, um, you know, Boston and New York. I did a one woman show with Alan Rickman many years ago. Um, that was so special to me and he became one of my biggest mentors. Um, until he passed and and I still, you know, he's, I, I wish he was here today because I honestly feel like he would be so excited that this was happening. Um, and he, I just think I would love for him to watch this film, but, um, but yeah, so I've done, been doing mostly theater and I, you know, I haven't really, I just moved back to New York uh, officially two years ago because I was in uh, Kansas city. My mom was diagnosed with cancer and um, she's in remission now. She's doing great, but um, I went there to do a Shakespeare play and that happened while she, you know, while I was there. So I just ended up staying there for a while. So I basically stayed in Kansas city. Um, and then I got cast in Shakespeare in the park um, with Daniel Sullivan doing Coriolanus. And I just was like, I think I, I need to, I need to be, I need to be back in New York. Like I just, I need to be, I, I need more opportunities. I love Kansas city. It was great. And I, I it's a, a thriving. And that is the cool thing that I've learned over the years is there are thriving artistic communities all over the country. And that's not just New York and LA that have these beautiful enclaves of artists. Um, so I feel very fortunate that I've had that, um, but I'm so happy to be back in New York and it's really just so fun now to be back in the mix. And uh, cause I never really gave, I never really had that New York moment after grad school because I moved quickly out of town to LA and then I moved to Boston and then I moved to Kansas city, you know? So I feel like now I'm like, yes, I'm back in New York. <laughs> I also saw on your IMDb Shutter Island Oh my gosh, that's when I was in Boston and I was doing, I was actually doing um, Angels in America. I was playing Harper and some of the like low, some of the um, casting scouts came to, for some reason, just came to see that show and afterwards came up to me and they were like, you are so good at playing a mentally unstable person. And I was like, oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. My parents would be so proud. Um, so they basically were like, we're filming this movie with Martin Scorsese and uh, it's in this old abandoned mental institution. Would you like to be a part of it playing a, you know, a person in a mental institution? And I was like, well, yeah, that sounds awesome. <laughs> so basically it kind of came on and I was a glorified uh, extra really. I mean, I was an extra on the film. I was, I mean, it was one of the, I mean, it was the first big film set I've done. I had done some national commercials before then, but like, this was like a film mm -hmm. and going in and getting my hair done, getting a wig on, getting that. Um, and then as I, at the, as it kind of kept going, I kind of started talking to Marty through the process and it was really fun. We kind of had this really playful relationship and he was like, Oh, you know, there'd be like razor blades on the floor. And he's like, keep those away from Bree. She's crazy. You know, we had this kind of very playful interaction um, and one of my favorite stories was um, one day we were, we, I was sitting behind them, like kind of like insanely rocking behind Leonardo and Mark Ruffalo um, because, you know, I was having going, I was having an episode um, and they kept moving. They kept shifting Leo and Mark over. And uh, then the AD came out and said, I just wanted to let you know, and back in Video Village, Marty was like, can you just tell Leo to move over? I can't see Brie. And I was like, that's, <laughs> that's pretty great. <laughs> And so afterwards, um, at the end of the at the at the end of my time there, Marty and his um, AD like came up to me and said, 
you are fantastic. You were so underused. We didn't know how to, we didn't know that you were going to be in this, you know, so, but we're going to give you a name so that you have a credit and that you'll get residuals. And I was like, that's awesome. So that's kind of like the story of that is like how I'm female mental patient and that, or female patient, I think. So that's, yeah, that was like a true honor to me that I was like, oh, that's really cool. And I'll tell you what, I am still getting some residuals from that. They were still loving it in Germany. Um, I got an $18 check uh, last week. So <laughs> drinks on me. So, <laughs> so you worked with a lot of non-actors in this and had incredible scenes with them. What was it like working with Brenda Dice? Um, what was it like working with, I forget his name, but the guy who played Lonnie, who I understand worked in a restaurant before. Yeah. Yeah. Ethan. Uh-huh. That's one of my favorite scenes in the entire movie is your scene with him. It's you know, that's so funny that you say that that was an added scene that day. That was not originally in the script. And Sean really wanted to have a scene where you saw Lonnie and Lexi's relationship. And, and I, th I really, we actually say that that's one of our favorite scenes too, is that it just kind of feels like, oh, you can kind of sense, and she's saying like, look out for Mikey, don't get him in trouble, you know, make sure he stays out of trouble. Uh, yeah, that, I really, I love that scene. Um, I, I feel like that is part of why this movie is so uh, fun and exciting is that it has the, the authenticity of people who are from the community. And that's something that you just can't, you can't find from just casting a bunch of um, professional actors. And I, I felt like it was such a gift to the entire um, experience because I, you know, especially working with Brenda, Brenda and I became really close and I started to kind of study her as we were working and trying to pick up her kind of mannerisms, trying to like look at the way that she holds a cigarette and kind of say, okay, maybe Lexi would have seen that over the years and maybe that's how she holds a cigarette, you know, and, and, um, some of her cadences, some of the things she said, and you know, I would say something, and and she and I'd say, does this sound like something someone would say? And she's like, yeah, yeah, that sounds right, you know. And so I felt like she was such a gift in the entire, and like in between takes, she would just tell us these stories about what it was like to live in the area, and like, and her, she's had such a, a hard life, and it honestly, hearing her talk about everything really was such a, I mean, really was, I, I can't even, I mean, no matter how much research I did, nothing compares to what I got from the people that I met in the community of what they gave us and what they shared of their lives and just with us about what it's like to live in that community. And well, and even Brenda, one of my favorite moments in the entire movie, I wish I could remember the guy's name right now, I'm blanking on it, but she actually used like the real sheriff's name in like Texas City, like when we're like um, sitting perched on the, the sofa looking out the window when the, the cops are next door, she's like, it's Sheriff Montague or something, she says something and like I just, that is something that like you can't script that, I mean like Sean and Chris would not have known, I mean maybe they would have done the research, but like that kind of stuff and 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 Brittany, what she brought, you know, Brittany who plays June, yeah. you know, she added, um, you know, like Sean wanted to figure out how to say like, where, you know, why don't you sound like us anymore, Mr. Hollywood? Um, the kind of trying to explain to the audience like what happened, why doesn't, why Mikey doesn't have a dialect. And um, Britt's like, well, I think like we'd say like, you sound brand new. And, and Sean's like, that's great, that's great. And that's something that Britt, brought in that you know so I just I felt like that's the beauty of this product this project is the um the ensemble of everyone coming together you got three professional actors 
Simon being the one with the most experience film-wise, uh, cinematically, um, Susie coming fresh in from, you know, having studied a little bit of acting in musical theater, and then me from the theater world, and then you have surround it with this cast of characters and beautiful humans from the area, and you just have this beautiful mix of real humans. <laughs> hey, it's Tim Malloy again. That's our Brielle Rod interview. I think she just perfectly summed up what is so wonderful about Red Rocket, besides being a film made up of lots of not just professional actors, but quote-unquote real people, regular non-actors, it also just feels like a movie made up of real humanity for good and for bad, and I absolutely loved it. Really recommend you check it out. It's in theaters now. If you've enjoyed this Uh, please subscribe feel free to give us some stars on apple reviews whatever even better tell a friend that you liked it visit us anytime at moviemaker.com and uh have yourself a merry little next week thank you so much for listening